How's that? Good. I that's probably won't talk that that's loudly okay, though. It's good to actually get that but upper we'll get limit. Oh, should I do that too? Yeah, levels. you should. Oh God. Just say something. You know. Something very loud and <laughs> funny and ha 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 and ha 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 and all those things that happen. <laughs> you never sound like that. I never sound life. like this. But like laugh like it's genuinely funny. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the Poet Salon, a podcast where we talk to poets over a drink we've prepared especially for them. I'm Luther. I'm that Bilch Hughes. I'm Gabrielle Beans. And I'm Duji Tahat. <laughs> this week we're talking to Ahmad Jamal Johnson via Zoom about advisorship, illusions, and arrangement. Oh. Mm. Our drink for this episode is a neat glass of the Macallan Fine and rare vintage single malt scotch whiskey from the Highland Scotland for a mere 200 grand. Is that per shot or per bottle? Per bottle. Born and raised in Compton, California, educated at Howard University and Cornell University, Ahmad Jamal Johnson is the author of three poetry collections, Red Summer, Darktown Follies, and Imperial Liquor. A former Wallace Stegner Fellow in Poetry at Stanford, McDowell Colony Fellow, and Cave Canem Fellow, his honors include the Hurston Wright Legacy Award, the Dorset Prize, and a Pushcart Prize. His work has appeared in Best American Poetry, American Poetry Review, Kenyon Review, Callaloo, Narrative Magazine, Crazy Horse, Indiana Review, The Southern Review, Harvard Review, and elsewhere. He teaches in the MFA program in creative writing at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. But before we jump into that transcendent conversation, <laughs> Translucent Tabitha wants to know what you think about clarity in poems. How important is it for you personally, I assume? <laughs> I'm, I'm not Tabitha, so I don't know. <laughs> you can't, I don't, you I don't can't know prove what that. she meant. She's Tabitha, y'all. Um, I'm editorializing now. Clarity. I think for my own poems, I value clarity as a way to be vulnerable. Um, and to really talk about what I need to talk about. Um, I also do love, you know, every once in a while, having a some nice opaque, opaqueness and some nice veiling and things like that. But I think for me personally, um, for my poetics at least, being clear is of more value for what I want to talk about, I think. Um, and also because I talk about other things like nature and all these other things that has its own type of veil that I don't need to veil anything else if that's already veiled in the poems in some way and then just like in the world. And so it's important for me to be clear and to have clarity because of how I want to be vulnerable on the page, I think, and in the content of the poem. Something your work teaches me, Luther, actually, is the difference between clarity and being straightforward. I think a lot mm. of people think those two things are the same and they're very mm -hmm. different. And yes. your work in particular for me is like a really uh, clear example of how to be extremely clear in terms of like the emotional journey of a poem while also embracing these like grand flourishes of language, you know, like you're not afraid of a flourish and thank God because like you do it so well, oh, but, you. um, I feel like when 
I've thought of clarity in the past and when I'm pushing myself towards it, it often leads to like a more simple syntax and like a, a more stripped down diction. Um, and like, that's for me how I force myself to be clear, but you have this way of being very emotionally clear while also just like spinning and twirling and doing all these amazing linguistic tricks and like relishing in these like wild adjectives and stuff. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. I think like also buried in the question about clarity is also sort of a question of audience in some ways. Right. Like I think that even in hearing you say Gabby, like I think the drive towards clarity is like sort of this idea of a general audience, right. One that is like sort of made like the, the sentences are like, like made more accessible in some ways because like the diction sort of brought down and the syntax is like more straightforward and they're just shorter, more consumable, easy thoughts. Um, so for me, I think of clarity in the service of like, who am I trying to reach? Right. Mm. We're about to talk to Ahmad who we talk to illusion. We talk about illusions for, right. And like illusions and references can be clear for your audience. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, if that audience is who you're intending to do so uh, to reach. So, but they can be totally opaque and inaccessible for a whole other subset of people. In which case, again, like it feels like a way to manipulate certain people's reactions, right? To know that like you can be clear using any number of craft elements to get at something or to reach across like the, you know, the time space continuum of the poem uh, <laughs> <laughs> to the person that you are like trying to get at. Um, I think like that's for me how I think of clarity mm. because I think like a yeah, complex sentence like can be clear. Right. Yeah. If, if like the journey of the complex sentence is like the thing that you're sort of trying to like create an experience. Absolutely. I can't think about clarity without thinking about, um, once again, the incredible Vivi Francis, who once upon a time just looked at me and was like, risk clarity. Mm. Like, like stop dancing around the thing mm -hmm. and risk clarity. And it goes back to what you're talking about, Luther, as clarity as vulnerability. And I also think about this exercise that she often invites people to do, which is in a first draft, you're kind of getting to the end of this first draft and you can feel it getting to the end and you write out what I meant to say was, mm -hmm. and then you force yourself to complete that sentence. And it's not to leave that in the poem. In fact, I think she would say like, don't leave that in the poem probably, but just to force yourself um, to think about what did I mean to say in this poem as it's sort of still really fresh. Um, and I think about that a lot. I don't always do it, but um, I think it's one of the more helpful self exercises that poets can do. Yeah. I like the idea of risk to related to clarity, right? Because I think like, you know, the flip side of the way we consider like making things more clear and like making things more accessible for like more people to read is that it like risks not like meaning anything too. Right. Mm. Um, just or like it risks of, hurting people. Mm. Yeah. If you're really mm -hmm. clear about this situation that happened, this feeling you're having, like there are real people in the world who might encounter that and be like, Oh shit. Right. That's, that's how you, that's how yeah. you feel. That's how you felt. And that can have real repercussions. And I think a lot of poets have reasons for hiding in their poems. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that to your point, like I think like doing that sort of self-reflection as to like what end is this clarity for? Like what am I achieving Yes. Um, in the context of the poem? And even like that sort of secondary exercise of like, is there something outside of the poem 
right? Is there like a kind of clear, does this help me arrive at a certain type of clarity that then allows me to do something outside of the poem is like also a really useful exercise, right? Because there's, we're talking also about like, I mean, poems are also an exercise for us poets to achieve clarity. about like Exactly. Our own thing, right? Yeah. This isn't yeah. to say you have to set out writing a poem, knowing what you're trying to say, like right. by all means, no, please don't actually, yeah, actually yeah. stop everything and don't do that. Um, but it's about at some point in the process, not letting yourself off the hook once something that you're trying to say makes itself known that it wants to be said. I don't know. Yeah, if that I think was it goes clear, into like the but, editing process. Like I think yeah. that's why editing is a lot of the writing actually part of the process. Cause like you can write a thing, sit down, write a thing. And then the editing is where you're like, okay, did I mean this? What am I getting at? How will I get there? Does this make the most sense? And so I think that's, we can ask ourselves the questions like, okay, I meant to say this. Is that being clear enough? Does, does clarity even matter in this poem? It's also a question too. Yeah. Um, or like, what am I being clear about? Right. Mm, like that's, that's I question. feel like sort of also the wider question of like, you know, in drafts, like before you sort of choose to like cut stuff and you know, the question is always just like, what, what am I saying? And can I read this like with some clarity to understand like the like full scope of what I could possibly mean by this? Right. Mm -hmm. Like that's, I feel like how, if you can get to that point, you know, like mm -hmm. still training myself to get there, like with all like knowing that, like if I can get myself to like, be like, can I have a clear relationship to the draft that I just wrote? Mm. Um, and like, if I can then sort of expand my vision of like what this thing is trying to tell me, mm -hmm. then I can decide right for the reader. It's like, X is actually not, uh, this is muddying the water of like what I want them to experience. Right. I'm also thinking now about Natasha Trethaway, who has said that her question after she finishes a poem is always for her first reader, who's apparently often her husband is, can you see it? Oh, like, could you see it? And that's a type of sort of imagistic clarity of like, yeah, could, could you see this? Did it come across? Is it clear? And if not, then like, maybe that's where I want to go back and push and change. So that also feels related, but there's so many, so many kinds of clarity, you know, there's a narrative clarity, there's image clarity, there's emotional clarity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking a lot about, um, different poets who often do this, um, or often it's clear, but not straightforward or straightforward, but not exactly clear. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. Ooh, straightforward, but not exactly clear. Yeah. Lucille and that, Clifton and has some poems like that for me. Yes. I was thinking her too. Um, like she's not always the most straightforward, but she's so clear in how she talks about a thing. So it's like, so it feels simple in a way. People call it simple because like it feels very like, you know, uh, watered down and they understand it. But the way she approaches her poems um, or the craft that she uses is not as clear as the content that's straightforward. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, that's a really good one. Lucille Clifton's yeah. a good person who's straightforward but not clear. Sharon Olds might also be someone who's straightforward but not clear. Like, yes. especially her utilization of syntax. Like, I feel like, huh. like, I feel like uh, even in the titles, like, she's really clear about what she's talking about. Mm, but like then, the occasion exactly, or like the subject, exactly. quote unquote. And even like the emotional clarity of like what's happening in the The poem. emotional clarity of her poems comes through so strong exactly. for me. Yes. Exactly, so that's strong. what I'm saying. Yes. But okay. then the like actual sort of syntax of it, like, for me, like often I'm just like, I'm not sure necessarily how these clauses relate. <laughs> like, right. Uh, right. Yes. Yeah. Or like sometimes the line breaks, you're like, you're breaking the, on the word my. Right. Like, yeah. Or the word the, you're like, I don't know yeah, why she's like, doing this. <laughs> that's a really good point. That's yeah. interesting. Oh, I love this conversation. I love this question. I feel like we could talk about it forever, but also, oh my God, Ahmad. Let's go to Ahmad. I loved chatting with Ahmad so long ago. I'm excited so to share this.
Enjoy. Ahmad, it's so nice yeah. to meet you. Hey, well, it's great to meet you. It's In this way. Yeah. Thank you so much for making the time to do this. We're all such huge fans. Oh, no, I'm, you know, fans of your work, and I really appreciate the spotlight that you're putting on poetry and just, um, you know, your energy in general. Um, I just feel like there's a lot of glamour, you know, around you, um, you know, and just like, like a spirit that just kind of circles you. So um, I really appreciate this attention, you know, in your time, obviously. Thank you. I'm going to put glamorous spirit on my CV from now on. <laughs> it's not already there? <laughs> You're right. You're right. I'm behind. <laughs> Y'all, do you know that etymologically glamour and grammar have the same root, right? Have we talked about this? No, Gabby, you know we I haven't, know but let us know. Yeah, tell us more. <laughs> glamour and grammar at the root, twisted way back, is like womanly sorcery or something like that. Oh. Hmm. So is grammar then considered a, a feminine witchcraft maybe maybe you I mean, said it not me <laughs> like some like a, it's like artifice or like constructed certainly well there's something spell like about grammar right i mean it's like i mean now i'm going to get it confused with syntax but the arrangements of language that impart sense making like what's not yeah. spell like yeah. about that well if what's it's like witchy um, you know, prescriptive or descriptive, right? You know, so, um, you know, if you're trying to like make a potion, um, you know, you want to get it right. Or, you know, if something's happened to you, you're trying to figure out what went wrong, right? So. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Oh, I love that as like a, a potion recipe. Yeah. Is grammar. Wow. Anyway, didn't mean to start the conversation there, but, um, <laughs> um Ahmad, I decided I had to buy your new book, Imperial Liquor, immediately after reading the first poem in the book, which Luther had posted to Twitter. Uh, the poem is called Smoky, and to me, it's one of the most incredible and resonant short poems I've ever read. I was hoping you would read that poem for us and then tell us what you remember about the process of writing it. Oh, yeah, sure. All right, Smokey. The most dangerous men in my neighborhood only listen to love songs. To reach those notes, a musicologist told me a man essentially cuts his own throat. Some nights, even now, I'll hear a falsetto and think I should run. This is actually one of the last, the last poems I wrote for the book. Ironically, like it's the um, the poem that opens the manuscript, and I think it kind of sums up like everything that I was after. Um, just when I didn't even know I was like writing this book, and I was just like listening to a bunch of um, like slow jams from the early uh, 1970s. So like um, you know groups like the Shy Lights, um, Blue Magic. Um, Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, um, you know, like groups that kind of had 
singers like Teddy Pendergrass and, uh, you know, who um, begin to really develop their reputation like in the early 80s. And there is this romance uh, that kind of lingered in the Black community um, just after the Black arts movement or the Black power movement, um, but before uh, disco happened and uh, before, you know, some of the really kind of tragic things that were beginning to happen like in the early 80s. And that sound, or at least like what was kind of circling in that music had this uh, really kind of like syrupy beauty to it, you know? Um, you know, I feel like we don't talk enough about uh, like what happened in the 70s uh, that kind of gave birth to hip hop that's also connected to uh, children refusing to sing, mm -hmm. you know, like kind of like what rap signifies um, as a kind of break from the church. Like I almost think of like hip hop as a structural critique of the failed romanticism of the black arts movement, you know, like um, that, you know, like think about a generation that decided to like take love songs and scratch them or play them backwards and then like layer them with profanity, right? Like it's a, it's a generational pushback to all of like the sexiness of black power, you know? So it was a, in the sense of like, you know, the break, right? Like break dancing, there was like a active kind of like deconstruction of that moment. So there's something about like that poem, I thought, well, like, how we talk about love and then think about like all like the danger and risk, you know, that there's almost something that's kind of like suicidal, you know, in that moment, in that kind of uh, romantic gesture. So if I hear, you know, um, any music with like harps or like, um, you know, just like a lot of strings in it. Uh, and this is what we think of in terms of like the, the like the Philadelphia sound, like Gamble and Huff. Like I get like all of the danger um, this is like, you know, all of the samples that Dr. Dre used are kind of connected to that period, like in the early 70s. Like he's thinking about Parliament Funkadelic and all that. Uh, but there's also like this romance that um, West Coast hip hop in particular is act like actively trying to damage, right? Trying to pull apart. So um, kind of a long-winded answer to that question. But. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, hip hop is a structural critique of uh, romantic music. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm wondering just as a follow up, like obviously sort of gender and masculinity frame so much of like the book itself and the, this poem too. And I'm curious if you could maybe speak on like the gesture of the falsetto or the move to the falsetto, maybe how that relates and maybe even like the uh, thinking of the structural critique, like how the break maybe um, also relates to that as like, Maybe, is it like a re-rendering or like how do we sort of reconstruct? Yeah, I mean, at the heart of this, um, you know, and this is really connected to like the early 70s. Um, I was thinking about the uh, function of the hyper-masculine and the hyper-feminine, um, you know, and it's like all of the, uh, the projection of like the figure of the pimp, you know, uh, in black exploitation films. Um, but thinking about like these men who were, uh, you know, exploiting women, uh, tearing their communities apart, but they're, they were also invested like in a kind of um, 
you know, artifice that we might identify as like feminine. Um, I mean, I think as much as I love Prince, I think like Prince also kind of like idealized like a kind of like pimp-like mentality. Um, I mean, you know, if I was your girlfriend is like a real deal mindfuck, right? Like that is like a, that is like a pimp move, right? Like long nails, uh, you know, wearing bright colors, um, you know, like getting your hair permed, you know, so like all of the, all of like the hardcore gangsters like always had like rollers in their hair, right? Because they were getting, you know, they got their hair done, right? Like they, uh, they took care of their nails. But like, those are the men you had to like, kind of like watch out for too, right? So like the hyper-masculine and the hyper-feminine uh, like always seem present. Um, so I wanted to capture like that kind of sensibility, like, uh, you know, in these poems that there was like a, you know, these performative gender things, you know, that were constantly happening, but it was always like, self-destructive, right? Like kind of dancing between worlds, but then it was also like a way of kind of like baiting audience. And I think the music had a lot to do with that too. Um, there was the seduction, but then there was also like a danger attached to that. So I was trying to define the tone of the book. And I think the phrase, a chronicle of melancholy on the back of the book is pretty, pretty spot on. And so in this book, there is a sense of sadness or pensiveness that doesn't necessarily have a true catalyst. The book also, of course, has, you know, celebration of life and all these things as well, and joy and happiness and love. But overall, the book is pretty pensive. And I think it really interrogates not the self or the I, but reflects on how the self has been created from their environment. This is also how they know various things like line breaks and ordering and pacing, which kind of enact the slow and steady reflection the speakers have, especially in the poem, Smokey. So I'm, I was wondering, how do you see pensiveness working in your poems and, and the book at large? Well, um, you know, naming the, uh, the collection Imperial Liquor, you know, I think I was playing with that idea of, um, you know, you asked like in your questionnaire about like drinks, for instance, you know, which I've been thinking about like constantly. It's like, oh, you know, how do I even begin to talk about that? Um, I like the kind of drink that um, slows you down, you know, that uh, like kind of like forces you to um, like take slow sips. You know, it has its own kind of like power, right? Like it dictates like the way you can consume it. And I think that question of melancholy or like the melancholy, uh, melancholic thread that moves through the collection has a lot to do with um, my relationship to Compton, like where I grew up. Um, there is a kind of sadness, a kind of uh, powerlessness that I feel uh, you know, about the city, uh, partly because if we think about it, like Compton is like our Harlem, right? In terms of uh, artistic production, right? Like just like the sounds, the music, um, you know, it's kind of, you know, next to the Bronx produces soundtrack for a generation. But there's all this like hope attached to the city in terms of like what it could have been, you know, and then there was just like wave after wave of violence that transformed the way we think of the city. So when I'm trying to negotiate like my own experiences to uh, or with community and home, uh, I feel like I'm constantly dancing uh, between like possibility and reality, um, like what Compton symbolizes. So, 
you know, in these poems, you know, these poems are much more personal, I think, than anything that I've written in the past. So part of it is trying to figure out, you know, an I that, you know, has power, right? Like I have control over my body, like the things that, you know, I hope to do, like the nature of ambition. Um, and then there's, there are ways that, um, you know, people are stripping power away from me, you know, or um, in the way that like Compton constantly transformed, I feel like, like personally, like I'm always transforming, like as well, like I'm struggling with or trying to like reconcile like my past and my present. So in that sense, uh, the slowness, the uh, pensiveness of it, I feel like there are always these like pauses where I'm trying to figure out like, where am I? How did I get here? What's happened to the city? You know, and not feeling like I have complete control you know, over any of that. So that power, powerlessness thing becomes a kind of hinge for me. And I tried to really communicate that, you know, in the book. I'm kind of curious. Uh, I keep returning to like a handful of lines uh, in, in the book, particularly uh, in Delphonic, um, where the speaker says, I could go the whole day in silence wanting nothing. And then another line in that poem, I guess I can't help but stare. And then those lines feel related to later, another poem later in the book, how often I've turned to Latasha Harlins, who would have been 43 this July, whose speaker ostensibly addressing the white gaze says, they just look, you know, without looking. While later the speaker goes on to imagine their imagining in the same poem. And I'm kind of curious with those two poems as the launching point, like I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the role of the speaker um, and how you view your speakers sort of negotiating both silence and song and like mere witness versus, you know, the like act of imagining. Well, this is something that, um, because it's my, this is my third book, like I realized there's a through line uh, that um, maybe represents like the, the larger arc of my writing career and that's the idea of spectacle. Um, you know, in, in my first book, Red Summer, um, I began writing that because I was responding to um, a series of postcards of uh, lynching scenes, you know, and I thought, uh, I thought about the people, um, you know, in those lynch mobs. And there was the experience of viewing those images and then thinking about the people who were viewing uh, like those bodies on um, you know, being burned. And then in my second collection, I thought, okay, well, I want to do something completely different. And I tried to like push away from that. So it's like, well, what would it mean to like, you know, tell a joke? Or what does it mean to think about how, um, you know, humor fails, you know, in some way? Uh, so I did all this work on uh, black vaudeville, um, you know, black people performing in blackface. Uh, so, you know, minstrelsy, but minstrelsy within the Black comedic tradition. But then with that, I was also like thinking about artifice, right? Like, um, what does it mean to uh, perform something that's like a grotesque version of uh, yourself, like in the white imagination, right? So there was a sense of like shifting perspective and uh, like a kind of change of proximity in terms of the gaze. Um, so being on stage, looking out at an audience, but then also thinking about the audience staring back, you know, at a performer. Um, so the gaze is constantly shifting. 
And then I think in this poem, you know, like that continues to be the case where, um, you know, I, I love to people watch. Uh, I'm from LA, um, you know, like so much of my life was just like hanging out and like watching people like walk through malls, you know, just like kind of large spaces, uh, you know, obviously just enjoying like that feeling of kind of like bodies moving around me. But then I also like, I'm very sensitive to what it means to move through certain spaces and, you know, feel conspicuous. Uh, you know, I live in Wisconsin now and um, there are like not as many people here who look like me, you know? So, um, you know, if I'm getting a cup of coffee or if I'm having lunch, uh, you know, if I'm, uh, you know, shopping with my kids, uh, you know, we stand out, you know, and eyes definitely follow us. And, you know, I'm very aware, you know, if I, if I'm shopping and I have my hands in my pockets, uh, you know, people are staring at my hands, like waiting for me to like pull my hands out of my pockets. Or, you know, there's just like, like that extra help, right? Like people keep asking, it's like, can I help you with something? Is there anything you need? You know, essentially kind of dancing me out of the store or like hurrying me up to the register because there's just this idea that maybe I'm there to take something. Um, you know, so, you know, my, Black Lives Matter conversation began with Latasha Harlins, uh, a 15-year-old girl who was shot in the back of the head, um, you know, in 1991 uh, after an altercation with a, a Korean grocery store owner. And, um, you know, Latasha was just trying to buy orange juice. There was some argument and um, all this was caught on video. And, you know, as she was leaving, the owner, you know, pulled out a gun and, uh, you know, and shot her. And Latasha had money in her hand, uh, you know, when she died. So um, the store clerk, um, the liquor store owner was found guilty of murder, but the judge uh, commuted her sentence and just gave her community service. So the idea that like, you know, Latasha's death was, um, you know, like community service, you know, like ultimately, like that was the, you know, the payment for that. And this was before the Rodney King, uh, you know, beating. But, um, you know, these stories really ran through uh, Compton and South Central Los Angeles. So now that I have children and I'm in a different space, like I'm constantly thinking about that anger, uh, that frustration, uh, that fear that, you know, I carried through my childhood and trying to, you know, protect them like in certain ways from it. But it kind of goes back to, you know, that powerlessness, right? So again, it's like the gaze, but then what does it mean to um, speak, you know, into the distance, you know, between us? Um, you know, like what kind of work uh, should a poem do? Uh, when we think about the silence, when we think about how we're constantly looking at each other, not saying these things, reading each other and not necessarily acting, you know, on like the knowledge that we have, you know, and then this violence, fills that void. So I'm trying to construct poems to negotiate, you know, what seems to be like obviously a very dangerous space. Yeah. Would you read your poem, How Often I've Turned to Latasha Harlan's for us? Mm -hmm. So the title keeps changing uh, because she would have been uh, 45 this year, so. How often I turn to Latasha Harlan's 
who would have been 45 this July. As if you have disturbed someone at dinner, but rather than leave, you traipse through their hallways and bedrooms, rifling through their closets and drawers, fingering the fine linen shirts and pocket squares, the bespeckled display case your breath. And naturally, they are too polite to say anything. So they just look, you know, without looking, rehanging the same fucking blouse, unfolding then folding a charcoal cardigan, which is so late season, which you probably wouldn't have purchased anyway. And I'm convinced they've convinced themselves that they are good people, considering an apparent absence of sound, no ugliness, no sirens, no syrup or egg yolk marring some lunch counter. No one even contemplates the police, which warrants, I imagine in their imaginations, a form of applause. My sons were gone too long. They are developing this habit of walking their allowance down to our corner store. We haven't had that talk about their bodies, about the alarming rate of illiteracy surrounding their bodies. I'm ashamed of how much compassion I've shown our declared enemies, which is what I was given, always unzipping my jacket attempting to speak before spoken to, being pleasant, thinking someone is watching. And what they are waiting for is whatever I've placed in my hand, which rarely feels like grace. Thanks, Ahmad. Shifting gears a little bit. Uh, I've been grateful enough to be your advisee your first semester at Warren Wilson. You are also the director uh, of the University of Wisconsin Institute for Creative Writing. And in speaking with some of your other current and former students, uh, it keeps coming up that you're one of the best teachers any of us have ever had. And I had to fight the urge to just like read some of the gems that you have <laughs> written to me <laughs> over the course of many months, <laughs> many of which have just like, you know, really uh, made me weep. But um I'm curious, just like as a great poet, as a great teacher, um, I'm wondering if uh, you see sort of an inherent relationship between the two, um, why uh, so many poets are also teachers. Um, and for you yourself, like if you weren't teaching, you know, what would you be doing? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd never like planned or like dreamed to do any of this. Um, like at some point when I was in college, I just, um, I had to like come to terms with like my love of poetry. Like I was, um, you know, I was like pre-law and uh, I remember taking a, a technical writing course uh, for like legal studies and I wrote my first like appellate brief and it was like soul crushing, you know? And um, I was, because I went to school in DC, I, uh, I was lucky enough to have a, um, a congressional internship through um, the Congressional Black Caucus, uh, you know, which was great, right? Like kind of as a thing, you know, and I, I thought like, oh, well, this is, you know, a way to support, you know, my community and just be engaged in the things that I believed in. And um, the Congress person I was working for at the time was indicted for a uh, tax evasion and bribery. 
you know, and uh, he was my mentor, you know, and it's like, like my whole world kind of fell apart, right? Like it just became really disillusioned. And I remember the next day I got up and I actually like looked at my transcripts, you know, like I physically like looked at my transcripts and I was like, you know, well, I have been taking a lot of um, poetry, you know, uh, classes, <laughs> um, you know, but I think the thing that, the thing that I learned, I had a professor who, um, this was like a British literature survey. And, um, you know, I didn't grow up like reading um, like Beowulf, right? Like that wasn't like my jam. And um, so I was like geared up to really hate this class, you know, that I was just trying to check a box, but he loved it so much, right? Like, um, you know, we were reading the Wife of Bath, like Chaucer, and, you know, he would giggle at all of like the naughty bits in it, you know, um, that he almost like couldn't contain himself. And the thing that like I figured out then is um, what it meant to be a great teacher was you have to be willing to like demonstrate your love for something. Like all you're really, I, I don't know how to teach anyone how to be a poet, but I think I'm capable of like demonstrating that I love poetry, you know, um, like, I don't have a great memory, but like, I know if I'm right, like I'm right all the time. Like if I'm honest, I'm honest, like every day, you know, like it's just like the same thing, you know, that's gonna kind of come back. So, you know, the big thing for me is just making sure, you know, I engage, you know, the students in front of me and, um, you know, I'm just doing the work to, you know, be present. That's, that's kind of all I know. I love how that approach takes so much of the imposter syndrome out of it. Like if your focus is not on imparting a particular kind of knowledge or set of facts or something, and it's on imparting your love for something, I love how that centers and reorients in a way that feels really kind to both you as a teacher and to the students. Oh yeah, I mean the, um... Yeah, the more you read, the more you realize you haven't read anything. Um, you know, so this work is like always like humbling. And um, yeah, I mean, poetry is confusing. Like I have to pull it apart and put it back together. I mean, I will, um, you know, I'll write a poem out like in my, in my own handwriting. I'll record myself reading it. I'll like read one poem like all day. And it's like, why is this a poem? Like what makes this a poem? Right, like what's rational about it? And just, um, I think like approaching every work of art with that vulnerability, you know, like, like I wanna be taught. Um, you know, I was, I, the, the best piece of advice I was given a long time ago is, uh, you know, this work is about lifelong apprenticeship. Like whatever, you know, you know, whatever, you know, you think you've accomplished, uh, there's someone who's figured something out that you don't have. So, um, you know, being a student and searching, um, you know, looking for, you know, gifts and guidance, um, you know, I hope when I'm 70 or 80 years old, I'm still like thinking about, okay, well, like what, like, why do we use metaphor? Like what, you know, like what is the actual function, you know, of the sestina? Like, what is it, you know, just, so like a kind of productive confusion um, you know, rather than, uh, you know, thinking about some authority, um, you know, I mean, and the imposter syndrome is like real, right? Like, I don't care where you publish, what like award you win. 
you're always like negotiating, uh, you know, desire and anxiety, you know, and there's still like the blank page, right? So, um, you know, there isn't like a poem that's like, help me write the next poem. I have a personal affinity for the ends of poems and I pay a lot of attention to them in my own work and when I'm reading other people's work. But when I was reading your latest book, I found myself attending just as much, if not more, to the beginnings of poems and just how many different ways there are to enter a poem. Um, I was hoping you would talk to us about opening lines and the beginnings of poems and how you approach them as a reader or as a writer or both. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was taught, um, you know, if you walk into a room, you have to, you know, like slap your hand on the table um, that you only have, you know, you only have a few words to get someone's attention. And like, so the beginnings of poems for me are everything, right? Like it creates the initial pattern uh, to help you escape it. You know, it develops like some expectation, um, you know, all the energy um, levels of diction, like the, the music, uh, that first word, that first phrase, uh, you know, for me is the whole poem. Like, you know, as a reader of poetry, sometimes I'll just read the first poem, the first line of every poem, and then I'll circle back. And then I'll just kind of like, rather than like read like top to bottom, I'll like read like all the first lines, all the second lines, right? Like, like you know, and then, you know, and then do it in reverse, right? Like I, there are no rules. Like how are we supposed to read poems? Like do whatever you want, read all the last lines and then like kind of chip back, you know, kind of going back up. Um, you know, just to really understand uh, someone's voice. You know, even when I'm revising a poem, uh, sometimes I'll draft a poem, you know, top to bottom, and then I'll like write its opposite, you know, so then I'll like take the last line and like that'll be the first line, just to kind of test like the logic of it. So like I know, okay, well, this is, this is obviously the first line because of X, Y, and Z, or this is the last line because of X, Y, and Z. Um, so constantly trying to you know, turn work inside out, um, you know, just to figure out like if you believe, you know, or if you're invested in the structure. I love the idea of the first line being the first way to escape something that's, I've never thought of a first line like that. And I think kind of blew my world up a little bit. Um, <laughs> so I think of uh, your book, Imperial Liquor, um, what I'm calling it, the book of illusions. And that's illusions, you know, as a references and not illusions as in like a falsehood or a falseness. Yeah. And the book does a lot of referencing uh, many things like movies, places, songs, cities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we've talked a bit on this podcast about illusions um, and of our love for them and or our like questioning of them um, and how they're working. But in this book, I think the illusions work really well and in fact differently from poem to poem. And in some poems like featuring Lynette McKee's sister, we're given enough information to kind of research the illusion and kind of do a, you know, a surface level dive. But in a poem like Black Dragons, we're having to do a bigger dive and bigger research into like, okay, who are these characters? What are they doing? But the mm -hmm. difference between those two poems I named is Black Dragons feel so, the characters feel so close to the speaker that we don't have to do much research because they feel like home, like family and like friends. And so I'm wondering, Really, really. And also, your book has no notes at the end, which for me is 
a wild thing because most books with a lot of references have notes. Like you run to the back of the book and you're like, yes, I get it. But your book is like, wait, 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 wait. There's no notes here. Okay, so oh. what's happening? So I'm like, what question is, what is your relationship to the capital A illusion? And do you find yourself wrestling with holding the reader's hand so they quote unquote get the illusion? Uh, yeah, I think that's, um, that was a great question. Um, some of it is about intimacy and like, um, you know, like how we imagine a reader or um, me, I've, I've often thought that, uh, you know, a poem is one half of an imagined conversation, right? And so sometimes like, you know, there's a kind of like in speak or um, what it means to like, cultivate like our own like personal mythologies, you know? So, um, you know, if I'm talking about Teddy Pendergrass or if I'm referencing um, The Last Dragon or um, Enter the Dragon or like certain songs, um, in my neighborhood, like growing up, you know, there's just like a shorthand, you know, so if uh, I wrote a poem about Al Green, for instance, you know, immediately like someone would say, well, are you gonna like talk about like how like Al Green's wife like poured grits on him in the bathtub, right? <laughs> like, but if you don't, if you don't know that, like if you're not, if you don't have an intimate connection with like that part of someone's personal narrative, I don't wanna say um, like the poem isn't for you, but you know, if someone referenced, um, you know, Greek mythology, or, you know, there was some kind of like coded, um, you know, Shakespearean reference, you know, it was always like on me to like do that work, you know, and I don't, you know, if, um, if I'm reading, uh, you know, A. Stallings, um, you know, there are no notes, you know, um, connected to that. So, you know, I felt comfortable enough in this book to say, well, you know, you can do this work or you can just appreciate it, you know, for what it is, you know, so, um, you know, and then there are other references, like sometimes if it's a, um, like an epigraph or like a dedication, like there's a thing that's kind of coded, you know, there, right? So um, like there's a poem that, um, like it's dedicated to Douglas Kearney, um, you know, but then there are references to like Superman, you know, and like Khalil, uh, but then there's there's also like a reference to like Nietzsche, and you know so it's just um, the Paul like there's a, a very thin kind of Paul Salon reference you know like in that, but it's also like Parliament Funkadelic like it's a you know it's it's such like a collage like its own kind of collage poem, um, so I hope that there are like multiple uh, avenues to be able to like access a poem you know, on different levels. Um, so I, I hope that I'm not like alienating people, but, but now like the, you know, the poetry universe is so diverse in terms of um, the kinds of like knowledge that people bring to poems. I felt that, you know, rather than like have a book attached to the book, which is kind of what, like what the note thing is now becoming. It's like, oh, let me like start with the notes and then work my way into the poems. I thought, well, maybe there's a kind of like productive confusion, you know, that will kind of bring you back to the poem like multiple times or, yeah, watch some of these movies or maybe five or 10 years from now, um, you know, you'll watch a movie like Claudine or um, Nothing But A Man 
you know, starring Ivan Dixon. And you think, oh, like, I remember that poem, right? Like there's something that's kind of lingering in the consciousness. So, um, you know, it'll become useful for you as you like consume, you know, more culture. I just kind of like that idea, I guess. Yeah, the way you talked about, um, we were talking about your own life being your own mythology um, and every reference uh, being tied into your mythology reminds me a lot of Robert Hayden's work where he ties in a lot of references and you're just like, what does this mean? Where is this coming from? But you're like, I'm rocking with it because like this is your own mythology. This is your life. And maybe I don't have permission to access your life in this way, but I'm going to just keep rocking anyway. And I think your poems, while they don't, while they're not alienating anybody, I don't think they do a sort of, if you're here, you're here. And if you're not, maybe you'll get there at some point in the book. And I really love that, that approach. Yeah. I mean, Robert Hagen was a, a major influence. I think, um, you know, his ability to negotiate the historical and the personal, um, you know, uh, that high diction and it could still be like folksy. Um, you know, he's coming out of Detroit, you know, Paradise Valley, right? But he's still like wearing like an, an ascot, <laughs> you know, in those tweed jackets. It's like, man, I know where you're from. Like, is this, you know, but, but he, was, he was constantly trying to figure out like how he, you know, how he fit, you know, in different communities. And even if you, if you hear, uh, you know, th those recordings of Hayden reading and that like beautiful, syrupy like baritone right and then you look at like pictures of him with those coke bottle glasses and the kind of like kooky you know part like brushed down you know it's like he was like maybe like the first uh you know person to have like the the asymmetrical you know like salt and pepper like haircut right <laughs> so like his voice and like his persona didn't necessarily match right like and he sounds like he should be um you know singing slow jams right just that beautiful uh, you know, Sundays too, my father, you know, it's just like, <laughs> what did I know? What did I know? Right. I mean, that is, that is like 1970s, uh, you know, Barry White, turn down the lights, you know, kind of music, right. Just like his voice. But what's great about the music of the early seventies. So if you listen to like these brothers, like, you know, and that, that falsetto, right. And you think like, however you imagine like their bodies and then you watch those old like soul train videos like they look like clowns i mean like you know bell bottoms huge like ruffle butterfly collars um you know like their beards are like patchy um but it's all just like super like syrupy uh you know like candlelit music you know um so I love like that contrast, right? Like sound um, almost like pushing back against the image. So thinking about, um, you know, different registers of diction or like when, like the sound of a word and the meaning of a word like can work against each other. Um, so that's like a fairly significant, um, I guess like aesthetic question that I kept circling back to at the risk of like ruining this perfect like ending where we started <laughs> with the falsetto. <laughs> Listening to you talk about illusions um, like made me think like, you know, you're like sort of creating this landscape of illusion, which is like also a kind of place like for the, 
for the reader in the book. And I was thinking about that next to sort of your thinking of like how, um, of Compton, right? This is also a book about Compton, like a a physical place um, that you as a person have sort of experienced losing. Um, And I guess I'm curious, like what the relationship is between like a landscape of illusion and like a physical place where like, ironically, one is maybe like a little more fixed and like the physical place is actually the one that's sort of changing and like how you maybe negotiate those to like, and create the self. Oh, that's a hard question. Um, sometimes like think about Compton as like a segregated, um, you know, space, right? Like as a black and brown planet, uh, like the way uh, DC was before it was gentrified or, um, you know, parts of New York, um, you know, Detroit, you know, parts of Chicago still have that, that idea of, um, you know, a mythology being connected to that space um, is bittersweet, you know? Um, you know, I mean, I, I didn't like go to um, like Hollywood Boulevard or any of that, like until I was a teenager. Um, you know, every once in a while we kind of do things in LA, but like, you know, people in Los Angeles or Long Beach um, just seem like different people. Um, so in that sense, I feel like I grew up like in a really like closed circle. Um, so, you know, we loved what we loved and, you know, maybe people criticized us. Um, like I remember my dad was, uh, he was working in uh, aerospace at the time. Like he had like a job, like, you know, like just doing uh, electrical work, like on airplanes. And, um, you know, he mentioned that he was from Compton and one of his um, coworkers said, oh, well, what was it like growing up in a ghetto? And my dad had no idea what he was talking about. It totally like caught him off guard, right? So it was one of those moments when like, he thought of his world and his life and his family one way. And then like, he began to see that his worldview was different from the way other people saw him or like saw his community. Um, you know, and Compton is a place that like what Compton means for people from Compton is very different from the way people see Compton, you know? So um, in my second book, I wrote about minstrelsy partly because there is a strange tension, like when people left the city and then they began to see how people thought of the city, they began to like perform, you know, um, like stereotypes, like assumptions. so like the whole NWA thing, you know, for instance, um, you know, and, you know, Ice Cube, uh, you know, coming out of the Trump supporters, maybe like the, the strangest like way of like kind of coming full circle, mm-hmm. um, you know, but they didn't have, I mean, Easy e had a connection to the city, um, but a lot of that was just uh, performance. Like it was all artifice, but it, all, it also means something because like the people who would be identified as, gangsters were so beautiful, right? And had such an incredible energy around them, but they didn't have the support networks to do what other people did, you know? So like seeing these things that happened to the kids that grew up around me, you know, like who ended up, um, you know, getting cornered, you know, some kind of way, either through, you know, violence or, um, you know, like through the prison system. 
those who like escaped or developed some kind of life that pulled them out of the city, there was always a sadness connected to that because you know we knew we weren't the smartest, we weren't the best athletes. Um, you know, smartest kid I knew um, was a kid named Gerald Mackey. Um, but like the latter part of high school, he started um, you know producing like false credit cards. <laughs> you know, because he's like he he was he was smart enough to figure out how to game the system. Yeah. Um, you know, but then ultimately ended up going to federal prison for it. Um, you know, the best, the best athletes, uh, were kids who like essentially didn't play football or basketball, um, you know, in high school. So in that sense of, um, if it's like imposter syndrome or if it's like a responsibility to represent the city, because like, I'm not the best that came out of the city. You know, I'm just like representative of like the people like who I couldn't bring with me. And so I, it's always the first line of my bio. Um, you know, I'm like the strange relative in my family, like in the Midwest, people have no idea where Wisconsin is. Um, you know, so, you know, I'm also just doing my due diligence to make sure that, you know, I'm locating myself and, um, again, like telling the stories that would be like the kind of conversations that we would have at home. Um, you know, I wanted to write a book that like my cousins would kind of get, um, but that, you know, like the people I work with would also get, you know, and that's like a strange tension, right? Um, you know, there are things that I understand that I can't talk to uh, anyone about just because of where I live. But then when I go home, and there are things that I want to talk to my family, you know, I, like about, right? Like, I can't explain that to them either. So I feel um, constantly stuck between these worlds. Um, so there's like a poetics of, uh, of dislocation, um, you know, which is connected to time and race and fear. Um, and then also just age, Los Angeles, Compton, California, that's also a part of my childhood, right? So there's all of this nostalgia uh, tied up in uh, like all of this danger, all of this trauma. Um, you know, if I, if I hear, um, you know, AMG's uh, bitch better have my money, um, you know, I almost like weep like a little bit. It's like, oh, like that was, that was my childhood, <laughs> you know? But it is like profane, right? You know, just the, you know, how like these things that are so complicated in terms of, um, you know, narratives of like violence and misogyny, like also have a kind of romance attached to them. So sometimes I feel, or I fear that we're nostalgic for other people's nostalgia, you know, that like we're thinking about the things that our parents loved and they're thinking about the things that their parents loved you know, and it just kind of continues like in this strange waving motion, right? So the melancholy um, is partly connected to that, you know, that we're trying to find or locate ourselves, you know, in like a past that was never actually there, right? Mm -hmm. Because the past is connected to another imagined past. And we're constantly trying to peel back these layers to figure out like, when we were happy, when we were whole, so I don't know, maybe like the poems are like leaning into or speaking into like that 
geographic silence. Thank you. Can you, can you um, end this with a poem, please? Um, uh, Do wop. Oh, yeah, okay. Okay. Do wop. You have to know something about wanting to be saved by a song or have seen like a post-apocalyptic wave, a whole generation of hard-hearted men built for terror and self-sacrifice, all shatter against a single curb. My mother turned up every love song and sang as if the notes were liquid filling her lungs. I think what scares me the most is that I've never seen her drunk. And in every car, the same tune is playing, as if that cry is holding the air, as if we are dying, as if we have never lived. Endless thanks to Ahmad. Your warmth and generosity is still keeping us, well, warm. <laughs> Thank you, too, to Jack Straw Cultural Center for keeping these episodes from collecting the proverbial dust in the shared drive that I would have otherwise been sitting in. That's twice now I've said proverbial. Look at you. Let's just keep the scoreboard going. To keep us going. <laughs> proverbially. <laughs> and literally. Be sure to rate and review us on whatever app you're listening to us to right now. Uh, the truth is, the more popular we are, the more likely people will pay us to do this, which they currently do not. Yes, we make approximately zero dollars. We make approximately actually negative, negative dollars. <laughs> yeah. Negative. Do we want to share? Us. I don't even know. <laughs> we'll do the numbers at some point. It yeah. is in the negative. It definitely we are costs in the red. us money to do this. Yeah, you're welcome. But the uh, but the value of it to our lives yes. is immeasurable. Say that. That said, we would love it if you Venmoed us. <laughs> it's pretty straightforward. You could just like find our names on Venmo, hit us up, let us know. <laughs> Along with any questions about poetry or, you know, culinary techniques that you want us to answer, send us your credit card information and social security number. That's also another form of payment to the poet salon pod at gmail.com. <laughs> And follow us on Twitter, uh, where we do all of these jokes uh, on in short text format. Yes. Bye. origami, making crane cranes. Got a thousand wishes on my brain brain. I put salt in the water when I'm cooking up the pasta. Trying to keep me quiet, but you know it's gonna come.